everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Ginger Gerald, you lucky bastard. And what a lucky bastard I really am having all of you lot listening to my ramblings, both from near and from far. Last week in How Much? We discussed and compared today's prices for just about everything with prices from the olden days. We went down memory lane to the days when you could go on a night out get a curry on your way home and still have change from a fiver. And overseas, we reminisced about the good old days. Were they really good old days for you? The good old days of pesetas, francs, Deutschmarks. They might have confused us a little bit, but wasn't it exciting having so many different currencies to play with and not just the euro? Oh, and back then, there was no need to download an app just because you needed a pint in the pub either. Speaking of pubs, very good little link there. Speaking of pubs, this week we're going to talk about drinking. What a splendid topic that is. Different drinking habits and how they vary from place to place. But as it's now the end of January, or almost the end of January, let's start with a question for you all. How do you take your January? Dry or wet? Come on, own up. There's nothing to be ashamed of. How many of you did or are still doing dry January? Well, if it makes you feel better or worse, I'm doing it too. Although I should confess that I spotted an open bottle of leftover red wine on the 1st of January and I certainly wasn't going to let it go to waste. So my dry January actually started on or around the 3rd of January. Now, you might not know this, but apparently 13 million Brits are doing dry January this year. And depending which Google search result you choose, that's the quality of my research methodology, folks, up to 30% of the over 21s in the US were planning to do dry January this year, which is a massive increase on previous years. And of course, it's a massive number. Mind you, saying you're going to do without alcohol for an entire month and actually not having alcohol for an entire month are two quite different things. And here's what most surprised me about all of this. It's the younger age groups, the 18s to 30s, who are the most likely to give up alcohol for a month. Far more so, in fact, than us oldies. So why do people do it? Is it simply a reaction to the overindulging that takes place during the run-up to Christmas and New Year's Eve? It's true that in any normal week of the year, it wouldn't cross my mind to make some mulled wine or to enjoy a glass of sherry or port or Baileys or whiskey or brandy, let alone all of them in one full day session. But there's just something about Christmas period and alcohol. They're almost intrinsically linked to each other. I find all these dusty old bottles still half full, waking up and dragging themselves out of a dark cupboard that's not been open for 11 and a half months and quietly making themselves available to me and to everyone else who happens to be around. I guess that's a part of it. As is the financial pressure and guilt. Now, for those employees among us, payroll's often a little bit earlier in December, isn't it? There are all those prezzies to buy, and then you've got to get the turkey and the ham and the beer and the wine, and indeed the sherry if you've run out from last year. So if you're not careful, 
your December wage will have been spent before January even begins. And doesn't January feel like it goes on forever? It's like a double month. It feels like it's 60 days long, not 31 days long. So dry January is actually, in many cases, a necessity rather than a body-friendly detoxing. I'm going to annoy you all by being a super healthy version of myself this year type of initiative. Whatever the reason we do it, I guess it can't be such a bad thing. If only to make you realise how much you enjoy a beer after a game of footy or while watching a game of footy or a glass of wine with your dinner. What I'd be interested in measuring is the return to alcohol on the 1st of February. I can see it now, people just waiting for the clock to tick past the midnight hour on the 31st of January. They're foaming at the mouths with their very favourite tipple already and waiting in front of them. You know, your GNC or your Perno and Black. More on that one in a bit. I don't think I could have one of them if my life depended upon it. Or maybe a vodka rempel or a pint of Guinness. The research I want to read about is not how many people do dry January, but just how soaking wet is February. And does it make up for the good of the dry spell in January? Now, we like a bit of a calendar month play on words, don't we? Veganuary, Movember. Maybe we should have something every month. March, for example, could be the month when you eat loads of potatoes and we'll call it starch. And whatever would we come up with for the month we have to eat loads of capers? You've got it. Capril. What a great game this is. I can feel a GGYLB social media competition coming on here, folks. So get thinking. There's only 12 months to come up with and we've already done four of them. While we're on the theme of plays on words, what do you all think of a mocktail? It's a great one, that, isn't it? It's up with Capril, I'd say. Well done to whoever came up with that fabulous term. If you're out there and you're the person who came up with mocktail, then give me a shout and I'll get you onto a GGYLB onto next week's pod. Oh, and photos of mocktails also look great on Instagram, don't they? Far more interesting and attractive than a pint of lager. So that maybe that also helps with the promotion of dry January. So why has dry January not really taken off everywhere in the world? Well, some say it has, or at least it is doing so in the US, for example. But as other countries tend to have a bit more, you know, of a grown-up approach to drinking alcohol, maybe it's just not needed in other places. But before we get into that one, let's get back to where we started this conversation. Drinking. For some unknown reason, Drinking at home, wherever you define home to be, always feels different to drinking when you're away from home, doesn't it? How many people, mainly blokes maybe, drink lager for 51 weeks of the year? Not just any lager, but always the same brand of lager. And then all of a sudden, when they get off a plane, it's margaritas here, sex on the beach there, and wouldn't say no to a cheeky pina colada to wash it all down with. The rules and decision-making processes completely change when you're away from home. 
Mmm, this lovely, rather sweet Pinot Grigio, which I wouldn't touch with a barge bowl at home, is suddenly so delicious. Now I'm sat here on the terrace on the Amalfi Coast that I'll be popping dozens of photos of it, with me looking my insta best, of course, onto my Instagram and TikTok accounts, and I'll be expecting a million likes and love hearts. Oh, and maybe I'll take a bottle or two of this Pinot Grigio home, even though I could probably pick it up in Tesco's on the buy one, get one free shelf. But the truth is, it just never tastes the same in my backyard in Burslem as it does drinking al fresco in the piazza in Positano. And while you're in Rome, which we weren't, but bear with me, while we're in Rome, of course, you'll do as the Romans do. And you'll swallow down as many limoncellos and grappas as they'll give to you, particularly if they're a thank you freebie at the end of a meal. And it's not just what you drink, it's also where and when that fascinates me when you travel or when you live away from home. I always like to kick off my examples with Mexico. You know that now, so let's not break with tradition. Hands up, all of you out there, I can see you, you know. Hands up, who really likes tequila? I mean, really, like genuinely enjoys drinking tequila. And are you a tequila connoisseur who sups it carefully and thoughtfully with your eyes closed and may describe it as smooth and sensational? Or are you more of the way brigade, shoving a bit of soda water and slam it with salt and lime to take the taste away? Oh, and then put the empty glass on your head upside down. Whichever one of those you are, there's no doubt that when you're in Mexico, you'll not leave without having a few tequilas. And why not? They're socially enriching and you make a bunch of friends really quickly. In fact, you make as many friends as bar stools you fall off. And then for the really brave, the step up from tequila is mezcal. Have you tried that? You know, it's the one with the hallucinatory worm at the bottom of the bottle. Well, there's a real market for quality mezcal and tequila. And there's a reason the Mexicans don't slam the cheapest tequila mixes. And that's probably the same reason why they don't have two or three days of hangover trying to recover. Anyway, Moving on before I have a headache just thinking about that. Personally, I don't like aniseed. I'm not usually fussy about what I eat or drink, but I'd never knowingly choose an aniseed drink. On the other hand, if I was kindly offered a traditional local drink in a nice local bar or restaurant anywhere in the world, I'd be curious and I'd definitely not want to offend a waiter by refusing one nor would I want to show a lack of respect for the local produce, of course. So for both of those reasons, and because I love a freebie, I'd always say yes. This happened to me in Corsica once. The particular brand of pastis was, was 51, and it was served in a small glass on ice with a jug of water on the side, so I could add as much or as little water as I liked. I took one sniff of this stuff, and I suddenly got horrific flashbacks to a night out at university when, for some reason, and I can't remember, and definitely wouldn't have understood anyway, the entire footy team decided only to drink Perno and Black all night. 
Now, the images that came back to me at that moment were just a disgrace. I can't go into them. So you can imagine just how much I was looking forward to trying my 51. And the issue with these aniseed drinks is that it never really matters how much water you add to try to get rid of the flavour. It just remains as strong as ever. I think I'd have been better downing it all straight like a tequila shot rather than trying to water it down for hours and hours till I could finally polish it off. And when finally I did manage to empty the glass, overcame the waiter delighted with my performance to offer me more. Now for me this happened in France, but with these aniseed drinks, maybe it was ouzo in Greece or Zambuca in Italy or anywhere you like to be honest. Now, in my defence, I did set myself an objective of managing to tolerate this 51 drink throughout the course of the summer I spent in Corsica. After all, my predecessor there, he'd been pushed off a second floor balcony for showing a lack of respect. Although I do think his lack of respect had something to do with the restaurant owner's daughter and not an aniseed drink. But you know me, I wasn't going to take any chances. In Spain... I bet you've all noticed that people really don't mind a drink at any time of the day or night, do they? You go for an early morning breakfast coffee in any town, village, city or resort anywhere in Spain and you're very likely to see a bunch of beer bottles already polished off. And in the case of Mallorca specifically, they're always surrounded by a group of cyclists heading out to do their 160 kilometres for the day. Now, admittedly, some of these bottles might well be the alcohol-free variety. Here's a fun fact. The Spanish drink more alcohol-free beer per head than any other nation. But not all of them are alcohol-free. And they all taste of beer anyway. And there's always a couple of oldies, or sometimes not so oldies, but they look old, sat on the corner of the terrace with the carajillos, espresso with brandy, supping away before their day even gets started. Or maybe that is their day. Who in their right mind wouldn't have a quick beer with their lunch or maybe even a brandy to wash it down before heading back to work? Well, that's, that's Spain for you. Now, I always think that the European countries like France and Spain and Italy and Greece, maybe Turkey, they're much more sophisticated and grown up in terms of their approach to alcohol consumption than, let's say, a few other countries we know. Now, in these countries, the imbibing, and don't get me wrong, there's no shortage of it, the imbibing tends to revolve around eating. So the drink is there to accompany the food, and the food is there to accompany the drink. Now, that sounds absolutely perfect to me. Two of my very favourite things in life, and for me, inextricably linked. Teenage kids aren't told that they mustn't ever touch a drop of alcohol until the day they turn 18 or 21, depending where you are. Instead, no, they're introduced to a shandy, red wine with a bit of water in it, always with food, and that's very calm, intelligent, and yeah, sophisticated. So let's compare that very grown-up, educational, healthy and sustainable approach to alcohol intake for a moment to the traditional British approach, which goes a little bit more like this. Get home from work or college or wherever you are. Eat your fast food tea as early and as quickly as you possibly can to line the stomach. 
then get to the pub immediately without stopping anywhere on the way and make sure you're in plenty of time to get completely rat on as many pints of flat lager as the opening times allow without the unnecessary distraction and complication of having to eat anything. After all, when you're finally done with drinking and you get kicked out and probably won't be able to remember what happens next anyway, you can always pick up a kebab or a curry on the way home. Now, given the choice, which of these two approaches do you think is best? Maybe there's a time and a place for both of them. Now, I can hear many of you saying, oh, come on now, Ginger Gerald, you're just so out of touch. The UK drinking culture these days is all about supping and savouring artisanal craft beers from local breweries using traditional hop roasting techniques that have been passed down from generation to generation. Well, I'll tell you for one thing, that's not what I saw the last time I was out with the Brits in Magaluf, I can tell you. I saw pints of flat lager, loads of them, lots of bare skin and more than one ambulance. And that's not just when the Brits are on holiday. When was the last time you were in Cardiff city centre on a Friday evening? Or maybe even a Tuesday lunchtime, come to that. And speaking of the high demand Mallorcan mega resort of Magaluf, or should I say Costa de Calvia, which is what it's called now, that brings me on to the theme of the post or during drinking behaviour, which varies hugely, doesn't it, from nationality to nationality. Now, apologies, apologies sorry, in advance for my generalizations here, folks, because I'm going to make a few, but let's throw caution to the wind and give it a go anyway. After a bunch of souls and a few tequilas, Mexicans, they tend to get all excited and they start singing their favorite mariachi tunes like Guadalajara, Guadalajara or Canta No Llores. And they get all emotional and they kiss and hug each other. And ah, oh, that's lovely, isn't it? No harm done. And all peace and love mixed with a bit of proud patriotism. That's the, that's the Mexicans for you after a few drinks. The Spanish and Italians, on the other hand, they sip their fabulous, mature, full-bodied red wines or fruity little whites for hours and hours before being left a bottle of brandy or grappa on your table just to help yourselves to as you like. And yet somehow they still manage to carry on as though they haven't had a drop of alcohol all night. They just keep eating and drinking and drinking and eating and talking and getting louder by the minute if that's possible. After all, they tend not to start till about midnight and they just keep going forever. And what about the Germans or the Dutch or the Belgians? They're all famous for their fantastic beers. And my, I have to say, very minimal experience of their drinking habits suggests that they are pretty efficient alcohol consumers. Plenty of volume without too much mess or too many consequences. So what about the Brits? Well, they tend to start off with football chants. There's always lots of football chanting. Then there's lots of jumping up and down and clothes tend to come off. The colder it is, the less they feel they need to wear. And invariably things end up in a bit of a punch up after a belly of alcohol, don't they? Nobody's ever too sure why or when the fighting broke out or who was involved or 
who were just at the edges pretending to be involved for the adrenaline rush, but not really wanting to get their nice new jeans scuffed. And while we're on the subject of binge drinking as an entertainment for the masses, I've never lived or even travelled to either Scandinavia or to Australia, so maybe one of you needs to educate me here. But I've worked with quite a few Swedes and Danes and Aussies over the years, and wow, they really go for it when it comes to drinking, don't they? They make the Brits look like almost amateurs sometimes in terms of their speed and simple volume capacity for drinking beer. Do they all end up in a big ugly pile of fighting blokes at the end of the night? Or do they just bond happily and enjoy each other's company, irrespective of which rugby or ice hockey team they happen to support? I don't know. Now, since living abroad, and that's about 25 years of my life so far, my drinking habits have changed unrecognisably. As a younger guy, like most, I like pints of bitter and I could pop away quite a few of them in any given evening or even lunchtime, like anyone else does and with very little noticeable or even unpleasant after effects. Very nice indeed, and I was very used to it. But nowadays, when I do go back to the UK, not only do I feel really full after about two pints, but I might as well just stay in the loo all night and phone when I want to speak to anyone. After all, I'll be heading there every two minutes anyway. And more than a couple of pints just gives me a massive headache. On the other hand, I'm a dab hand when it comes to wine of almost any colour, quality or quantity. And I play my trump card on a G&T in a huge glass bowl. And I can even stomach an honestly digestif if I'm off of one nowadays without having to put it into the nearest plant while somebody's, plant while somebody's looking. Have any of you experienced this same drinking transformation over the years? Feel free to own up to it or post an anonymous message if it'll make you feel better. Some might say I've just gone soft. What do you reckon? Now, it's January the 22nd today. So the end of dry January and the waterfall the size of the Victoria and Angel Falls combined is already very clearly on the horizon for me. And I've discovered many millions of others out there. So it's time to go and polish the glasses and make sure I've got some accompanying olives. That's it on the booze for this week. I hope I've not made any of you feel guilty for drinking your way through January. You can do what you like. No judgment from Ginger Gerald here. So keep in touch via all the usual channels and don't forget to follow GGYLB if you don't already. And come on, encourage your friends and family to do the same. Everybody needs a bit of Ginger Gerald in their lives. Now, have a great week and speak to you soon. Thank you, Ginger Gerald, for enriching our lives.